Bible and open it to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. I want to thank um, Bruce and the worship team this morning again, leading us in worship. Adam getting us started. done such a great job with that. I don't like to do announcements at all. And when I find someone who like, not just like was willing to do it, but loves to do it, man, you got the job. So, but it isn't just giving announcements, it's leading us to prepare ourselves for worship, and I really appreciate that. Warnings are meant to grab our attention. Smoke detectors, right? Thankful for those, they signal when there's smoke, it signals that there's fire somewhere in your house. Gives you opportunity to attend to the problem, or if it's a serious problem, get you out of the house to save your life. Storm trackers, as we've been very familiar with this past hurricane season, it looks like we're going to have to pay attention again over the next few days. The storm trackers are tracking the path of a hurricane so that those who are in the way of danger can make the necessary preparations. Uh, I'm thankful that, uh, well, in the last, I guess, few years, with technology advancing, uh, you can sign up for alerts from your uh, banks and financial companies to alert you if, if there's suspicious activity on your account. And you can, you can check things out and make sure that there's some, not something unusual happening to your account. You, you protect your accounts and don't lose what money you might have in your, uh, in your bank. So warning signals are, are good. They tell us that danger is coming. And in most cases... They give us the necessary time to do what we can to avoid that danger. Now, as Christians, we have been charged with proclaiming the gospel, right? The word gospel, you know, means good news. We have been charged with proclaiming good news. The reason why we call it the gospel, the reason why we call it good news is because the message that we are sharing is good. It's a message of salvation, a message of forgiveness, a message of of peace with God. A message of eternal life. But what we sometimes forget is that in proclaiming the good news, we are also at the same time declaring a warning. The gospel is good news if we respond to it in the right way. But if we fail to respond to it positively, then danger is coming. There is the threat, not just the threat, there is the promise of God's judgment. The gospel warns of that danger that will come. And when we proclaim the gospel, we ought to also proclaim that warning. Partly out of full disclosure, right? Just to be honest. This isn't just that Jesus has a great plan for your life, that life will be so much greater if you come to him. That is true. But there's a dangerous side to that. We need to give self-disclosure as to why. The good news is really good. But we also must warn of danger because those who hear the warning might be challenged. They might be encouraged to respond positively. If they know the danger that's coming, they can still have time to avoid the coming judgment. As Jesus proclaimed the gospel during his ministry, we see that many responded positively to his message of salvation and life found in the kingdom of God. But at the same time, there were many who rejected Jesus and were in danger of opposing God. And so as Jesus ministers, he proclaims good news, but he also proclaims the warning. 
He directs that warning to those who do not believe his message, to those who are actively opposing them, opposing him, so that they might change, they might repent and enter into the kingdom of God, which is what they say that they were looking forward to. And we have such a story this morning where we see Jesus warning those who are rejecting him, those who are opposing him. We're in chapter 11, Luke chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 29 and read to the end of the chapter. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it, under a, puts it in a cellar under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, the whole, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, and the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are, you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets with your father, whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. We can see that the theme of this passage is rejection. And of course, that rejection centers around Jesus. So we're going to think about this idea of rejection, rejection of Jesus. And we're going to think about it in terms of the three sections that this passage nearly divides itself into. If you're following the ESV that I'm reading, you might notice those three sections are headed by bolded titles. That will be kind of our outline this morning as we think through the rejection of Jesus. First, let's think about the rejection, excuse me, the warning that Jesus gives about rejecting the gospel. Jesus warns the crowd in verses 29 to 32 against rejecting the, the gospel. 
Now, their rejection of his message takes the form of their request for a sign. If you look back at verse 29, uh, Jesus, uh, the, Luke begins to tell the story. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, in the Bible, the word sign usually points to a miracle. And the miracle itself is a sign, a representation, an indicator of something much greater, a, a greater representation in this case maybe of, of God's power or of, of spiritual reality. They were wanting Jesus to do signs to show that he was indeed, a particular sign, a sign from heaven, to show that he was in, indeed the Son of God. You might remember from back in verse 16, last week we looked at this, that there were some skeptics in the crowd who were asking Jesus for a sign from heaven, some extraordinary humanly impossible, probably celestial miracle that would unmistakably prove that he was the Messiah and the Son of God as he claimed. And Jesus here is rebuking in verse 29 that request that they make in verse 16. The fact that they keep seeking such signs from him indicates that they are, as he says in verse 29, an evil generation. Though they are God's people under the old covenant, Their continuing pleas for signs indicate a lack of faith both in Jesus and in the God who sent Jesus to them. So Jesus rebukes the crowd because they're asking for this sign, this extraordinary sign, this supernatural sign. When in reality, Jesus has been doing these kinds of signs already. He's been doing them throughout his ministry. We've seen through the Gospel of Luke that he's healed the sick. He's given sight to the blind. He's even raised the dead. And most recently, the, the, the thing that kind of begins this passage back in verse 14 is the fact that Jesus cast out a demon. There was a man who was mute. The demon was possessing this man, causing the man to be mute. Jesus cast out this demon as he had cast out other demons before, Luke records in his gospel. All of these miracles demonstrated the power of God that was at work in him. They all pointed to the fact that he was the Messiah, They validate, these miracles validate the truth of his message. How do they know that he was actually proclaiming the gospel? He was actually speaking God's word to them. It was by the power of these miracles. These miracles represented the nature and essence of his mission, what he had come to do, that he had come to redeem people. He came to break the power of sin and death over these people. He came to break the power of Satan over these people. And the miracles, again, if you look at the miracles, Jesus isn't just doing miracles randomly. They are showing, they're illustrating his redemptive work. Jesus says they don't need any more signs. But he will give them one more sign, and only one more sign, he says in verse 29, and that is the sign of Jonah. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that God called the prophet Jonah to prophesy to the city of Nineveh, which at that time was the the capital city of the very powerful, elite Assyrian Empire. God had called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and to preach, to proclaim, to prophesy about their evil and about the judgment that he was coming to send them because of that evil. And if you remember the story, what did Jonah do, right? Jonah ran from God's call. There was a violent storm on the ship as he was taking this ship to kind of run in the other direction. And the sailors of that ship, according to Jonah's word, threw him overboard and he was swallowed up by a a, a big fish. And there in the fish, God preserved him three days and three nights. The fish then vomited him up. And and when he, he, he is back into this world, he finally obeys God's call and he goes to Nineveh and preaches God's message to them. 
So what is the sign of Jonah that we learn about from the book of Jonah? And really there are two aspects of this sign. Luke focuses on one, but I want to mention both. I think they're both important. First, the sign of Jonah points to Jesus' death and resurrection. And Matthew records that this aspect of it too. Matthew records both aspects of it. He records especially this one in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. He writes, Jesus says, For as just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus says that Jonah's experience in the stomach of the big fish foreshadows his own death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead three days later. So if you take these two things together, Jesus' death and resurrection, those events are the ultimate sign. They are the ultimate miracle, the ultimate proof that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. It's in his death and resurrection that Jesus fulfills his messianic mission, right? Through his death on the cross, his resurrection of the dead, Jesus forgives sins. He inaugurates a new covenant. He declares the victory of the kingdom of God. So this is the sign, this is the miracle. This is the proof, the evidence that declares the truth of the gospel. We know the gospel is true. We celebrate this on Easter. We should celebrate it every Sunday. We know the gospel is true because Jesus was raised from the dead. We know that his death was important because his resurrect, he was raised from the dead, that it actually did what he said it would do. It would forgive sins. This is the sign that he is giving to them, foreshadowing it, prophesying of it. This is the sign that this evil generation must see and must ultimately believe. The second aspect of the sign of Jonah points to the repentance that is proper, that is the proper response to the preaching of the gospel. And that's, the fo- that's what Luke focuses on in verse 30 and also verse 32. Remember that when Jonah went to Nineveh and he finally prophesied, he finally confronted the Ninevites about their wickedness and warned them of God's judgment, that they repented. In fact, Jonah, provi- Jonah 3, 4 provides a summary of Jonah's message, right? Very short. Eight words. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I find it interesting here that Jesus refers to Jonah's preaching, his message, in verse 32 with the Greek word kerygma. It's translated as preaching. That's an important word in Christian history. It's an important word in Greek. The early church described their preaching of the gospel, the essential gospel, the, the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection, as the kerygma. We preach the kerygma. We preach the death and resurrection of Jesus. I find it to be an interesting word here because I'm wondering what Jonah was preaching, and I'm going to not speculate here a lot, but just try to maybe imagine a little bit what Jonah's message included. We have those words. I'm thinking that that was probably a summary of what he said focusing on the judgment of God that was coming. And, and part of probably what he explained, I mean, imagine what the Assyrians are looking at. This guy just come out of a fish and maybe looking all a little grungy and, you know, just this weird guy from this place called Israel just calling them to repentance. And they're probably like, you know, who are you? I wonder if Jonah, as validation, is just kind of a sign of his own authority, sign of the fact that God had sent him, told the story of what happened to him. The fact that he had disobeyed God, he had been swallowed up by a big fish and been vomited out three days later. And because of that preservation that God sent him to them to give them this, this warning, this message. In a sense, I wonder if this is partly a foreshadowing of the gospel. That what Jonah is proclaiming to happen about himself is a foreshadowing of the gospel. A foreshadowing of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That that was essential to his 
preaching. Furthermore, I think Jonah's message to the Ninevites probably included a call to repentance. He had warned them about their wickedness, that God's judgment was coming. And perhaps, as part of his message, he told them that they needed to repent. Whatever Jonah's message included, the Ninevites were convicted of their sin, and they responded in total repentance. They turned away from their sin. You read the account. They put on sackcloth and ashes. The king called the people to repent. Even the animals repented. They turned away from their sin. They turned to God in hopes that God might be merciful to them, and He was. Well, just like Jonah, Jesus has also been calling His people, been calling the people in the crowd, the Jews, God's own covenant people, to repentance. The gospel, because it is a message of good news, begins with a warning. The good news isn't really good. I say that. The good, the good news doesn't sound very good unless you include the warning. The warning that God's judgment is coming because we are sinful people. We can't act. We won't act maybe not motivated to act, unless we know what danger we face. And Jesus does that here. He warns them. He calls this evil generation to repent so that they can avoid God's judgment, so that they can enter into the kingdom of God, the kingdom that they were looking forward to. They were looking for Messiah. They were expecting Him. This is how they enter in. Understand that God's kingdom brings judgment but they will find salvation if they turn, for their, turn from their sins and trust in Christ. And because they are an evil generation, because they continue to ask for a sign from heaven, and because they continue to believe, uh, they failed to believe that Jesus was indeed the one whom God had sent, they are in danger of rejecting the gospel. And so Jesus warns them, and he warns them by pointing to other historical figures in the past who responded positively to God's message with far less insight than the Jews of this, of this crowd have. For example, in verse 31, he points to the queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba. That she was one who ruled over a distant kingdom far removed from Israel, and yet she had heard about the wisdom of Solomon. So she traveled a great distance to hear of Solomon's renowned wisdom. And when she heard it and saw all the blessings of God upon Solomon and upon Israel, she admitted that Solomon's wisdom was far greater than even she realized and that she even had heard. And that the source of Solomon's wisdom, the source of his supreme wisdom, was God himself. She was a Gentile. She lived at a great distance from Jerusalem. She had far less understanding than the Jews of this time had. And yet she responded positively to Solomon's wisdom while the Jews of Jesus' generation reject his message, Jesus being one who is infinitely greater than Solomon. And Jesus says that at the judgment, the Queen of the South will rise up and condemn them for their rejection of Jesus, for their rejection of the gospel. In other words, Jesus is saying that this evil generation has no excuse for rejecting his gospel. The same is true for the Ninevites. Jesus returns to that illustration in verse 32 they too, with their limited insight and understanding, repented at far less clear revelation in Jonah's preaching. Jesus says that they will also rise up at the judgment and condemn this evil generation for rejecting the clear teaching of the gospel from someone who is supremely greater than Jonah. Jesus 
the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. Well, the, the warning that Jesus gives to the Jews, it doesn't just echo around in that time, in that generation of the first century. It resounds loud and clear even to us today. We could probably apply the same moniker, the same title to this generation, this evil generation. Because there are still human beings who are living in rebellion against God, even to this day. And they are just as much in danger of the final judgment as those as the crowd was in that time. And we have been given the clear revelation of the gospel. We are living even after the very things that are still future to Jesus. We are living after the death and the resurrection. We know it's a certainty. We have eyewitnesses. We have the full context of what Jesus has done. And so if you happen to come in here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe somebody brought you, maybe you just wandered in, maybe you've been self-deceived, You've been pretending to be a Christian. You know that you're not. I would just encourage you to hear this warning very carefully. Don't reject the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves you from judgment and that replaces death with life. We experience life even now in this moment. And we have life forever. When we are saved, we are spared of the judgment to come. And brothers and sisters, let us hear this message of warning to ourselves. That we might not become complacent in our walk. We're called to keep walking, to keep striving, to keep enduring. Let's not become complacent in our walk. And let's be concerned with those that we know and love who don't know Christ, who don't know the gospel, have yet to believe the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Are we persuading others? Are we concerned about their spiritual condition? Are we willing to persuade, to walk with them, to keep sharing, to keep praying, to keep encouraging them to consider the truth claims of the gospel? Because there is a judgment coming, and we want to warn them of what is, of what is to come. So Jesus warns this evil generation against rejecting the gospel. In the second section of our passage, Jesus warns the same audience of rejecting himself. And these two things, you know, they overlap. This is part of, to kind of break this down a little bit, according to the sections, you know, I'm just kind of changing the wording a little bit, but they're all the same thing, right? To reject the gospel is to reject Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject the gospel. But Jesus kind of focuses more on himself here in verses 33 to 36. In fact, he compares himself to a lamp, a lamp of, of divine truth that brings the knowledge of God and his ways to the world. We know, if you say the Bible, that the Bible uses darkness as a metaphor for the spiritual condition of this world. Ephesians 6.12 points to Satan as the ruler of the darkness of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see spiritually and thus continue living in their darkness. At the same time, Scripture teaches us that Jesus is the light of the world. That by his life and teaching, he makes God known to sinful human beings. He exposes the sins of men so that they can see it for what it really is. And that he reveals the way for sinful man to come back to God. In verse 33, Jesus tells a proverb that he applies to himself. He says, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. So the proverb explains the purpose of a lamp, right? You light a lamp, you turn on light so that you can see. 
The purpose of a lamp is to reveal, not to conceal. So in this culture, when a lamp is lit, you don't put it in a secret place. The word translated cellar there just means a crypt, a, a, a hidden place. You don't put it under a basket so that you can't see it. But you put it on a specific stand, a lamp stand, so that it lights up the room. In that time, it didn't have electricity. You put the lamp stand on so you can see in the darkness. You can see where you're walking. It prevents your ability to, 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 to fall into danger, to trip over something, right? It's like when my kids were much more little. You get up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom or something, and they leave their Legos on the floor. And you can't see the Legos in the darkness, but you can certainly feel the Legos when you step on them, right? And you're, you know, or you're tripping, I'm just prone to bump into stuff and trip over stuff. So the light is a very helpful thing to illuminate your way to keep you from, from walking into danger or falling into danger. Well, Jesus, it doesn't make the connection explicit, but based on the context, Jesus is saying he's that lamp. The light of the truth that he proclaims is not meant to be concealed, but to be revealed, to show off, to light the way. Jesus brings to the Jews here a clear understanding of the Bible and of the prophetic promises that reveal the character of God, the purposes of God, the redemptive mission of God. So by the light that he gives off, they are able to walk safely in the truth. And Jesus calls the Jews to perceive this spiritual light and to walk in it. In verse 34, he says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. So a healthy eye can perceive light. As it perceives that light, as it uh, processes that light, it then is able to walk according to that illumination, right? If it's light outside and my eye processes it properly, I can walk safely. I can walk in the midst of that illumination. And Jesus is calling the Jews here to recognize that he is the light of the truth. He's calling them to walk in that light because the light that he brings, brings God's care and blessing to them. But an unhealthy eye, he says, an eye that is diseased or deformed, does not perceive light. And so the body then lives in that darkness. Of course, the darkness is dangerous. One stumbles, one falls, one injures oneself without light. Failure to perceive Jesus as the light and walk in his illumination is spiritually dangerous. Why? Because by walking in darkness, they continue living in their sin. They continue living in their rebellion against God. So Jesus warns the crowd. Failing to walk in the illumination which he provides leads one to face the perils of darkness. Of course, that is a sign, a foreshadowing of God's judgment. So by walking in darkness, one continues to walk outside of God's way. They continue to walk in the way of opposition and rebellion to God, in the way of death itself. That's the warning of verse 35. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. The Jews are in danger of judgment for their rejection of Jesus because they are walking in darkness. And the irony is that they profess to honor God. They profess to love God. They profess to know the truth, to know His Word, to walk in it, to obey it faithfully. The irony is they are walking in darkness because they have rejected the light that Jesus has brought to them. So Jesus here is calling them to repent. He's calling them to submit to Him and to walk in the light that He brings. Again, this message is just as relevant to us as it was to this crowd 2,000 years ago. If you're not a Christian, Jesus calls you to see clearly that he is the light. 
And if you acknowledge His light and allow it to guide your understanding of God, allow it to guide your understanding of the gospel itself, then you will walk in the brilliance of this light. By walking in the light, you will repent of your sins. You'll submit yourself to Jesus. You'll know the fullness of life that only comes through Him. So Jesus here is warning you to look around and to see if your life is light or darkness, and if you're living in darkness, to run from it, to turn from it, and to walk in His light. And brothers and sisters, by God's grace, we have seen the true light in Jesus, and we have walked in His illumination. We have found the blessing and the life that comes only that God gives through this light. So Jesus exhorts us by this passage to keep walking in the light. Keep walking in the light. Don't turn to the dark places. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to His illumination. Keep walking in His ways. Keep walking in the clear revelation of the Word that He has given to us. And that brings us into the last set of warnings in verses 37 to 54, which is a warning against rejecting God. Jesus turns His attention to the Pharisees and the lawyers, and He warns them about their hypocrisy. We see that in verses 37 to 52. On the one hand, these Pharisees and lawyers, religious leaders, profess to love God. They profess their devotion to God. They claim that their motivation for all they do is to to honor God, to please God. But on the other hand, their public claims and their outward actions mask a heart concerned with self-promotion and self-glorification Those desires, those interests are rooted in their pride. Their claims are lies. Their their outward practices indicate that they're seeking to honor not God, but themselves. And in honoring themselves, by claiming to honor God and honoring themselves, they're really blaspheming God because they have corrupted His Word for their own advantage and they've rejected His messengers that He has sent to them to warn them and to teach them. Well, Jesus begins this section with a warning of the Pharisees. You see in verse 37 that he's been invited to a Pharisee's home for dinner. And as part of the process of preparing to eat, the Pharisees would wash their hands. Not like we do. We wash our hands for the purpose of of hygiene, right? Washing the germs. We're very familiar with that in COVID era. Wash your hands. Put on sanitizer, right? That's hygienic. That's to keep ourselves medically clean. But in this day and time, it wasn't a matter of hygiene. It was a matter of ritual purification. They're washing their hands so that they can eat their meal in the right state before God. But Jesus doesn't wash his hands like the Pharisees do. And when the Pharisee that invites him, is, it says that he's astonished. He's probably also offended. That word astonished can be used in a negative sense. Like this, almost being aghast. Why wouldn't you do that? That's, that's offensive. But Jesus, of course, knowing their thoughts, as we've seen earlier in the last passage, Jesus responds first by attacking this Pharisee's false piety, and really the Pharisees as a group. Jesus says that they're more concerned with the external matters of religion than they are with the internal matters of the heart. He's exposing their, their true nature. He says in verse 39 that they are full of greed and wickedness. And by the way, the word wickedness there in the Greek is the same word translated as evil in verse 29. This evil generation, this wicked generation, Jesus is lumping the Pharisees in with the broader group of Jews who have rejected him. 
these Pharisees take pains to follow meticulously their traditions that are concerned with external matters, but they fail to address the substantial matters of the heart, those things which Scripture is more concerned with. And such a condition is an affront to God. Jesus says in verse 40, You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? You see, man looks at the outward appearance. The, the Pharisees are concerned with what is outward, but God looks at the heart. The Pharisees have overturned God's true concern for man by prioritizing the externals that are rooted in their own man-made traditions and they are concerning themselves with their spiritual condition as God directs us in His Word. And so Jesus claims in verse 41 that the Pharisees need spiritual renewal. He says, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. In other words, their outward piety is false. It is given not to glorify God, but to attract the attention and praise of men. All this, we saw this on Wednesday night a few weeks ago. The things that they do are for the attention of men, for the approval of men, for the glory of men. But what they really need is to be brought into a new relationship with God, a relationship that Jesus is going to establish by His new covenant. They need inner cleansing. They need spiritual renewal, which only God will provide for them through Jesus. That change in their spiritual condition then will manifest itself outwardly in true piety, in true obedience, in sincere devotion that glorifies God. So Jesus then turns in verses 42 to 44 and pronounces three woes. And the word woe there is a, is a good word, interesting word, has roots back in the Old Testament. It appears in many of the prophetic oracles, oracles of judgment, when the prophets were announcing God's judgment to come, whether it be to his own people or to foreign nations. And the word woe here is just a word of warning. Judgment's coming. God's wrath is on its way because you have sinned egregiously. That warning is an announcement of what is to come, and it's also at the same time a call to repentance. And we see in the first woe that Jesus attacks, again, their false piety. He says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. So the Pharisees were good here at obeying the laws of the Old Testament to the very letter. They were obeying the Old Testament law, applying it to its most minor details. They were tithing herbs. When you brought your offering this morning, did you bring a tenth of your herbs? Right? We don't do that. That loses sight of the big picture. They were really skilled in, in majoring on the minors, if you will, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law, matters of justice. Jesus said you should have been concerned with justice. You should have been concerned with doing right acting in righteousness towards other people. Love of neighbor, we might say. They failed to, to truly love God. Their love for God was lacking. And Jesus here, by, by this criticism, by this condemnation, implicitly refers to the greatest commandments, right? What is the greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You should have been concerned with those things, the things upon which everything else rests. And yet they were focused on some little minor detail down here. In the second woe, so Jesus, by pronouncing that woe, calls them to repentance. He warns them of judgment to come, that God will judge them for their false piety, but he calls them to repentance. Calls them to a true devotion to God and a changed heart towards God. In the second woe, Jesus attacks the Pharisees' pride and arrogance. He says, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So they love the honor and attention of men. They love... In the synagogue, there were chairs at the front for the distinguished guests, those who were the most important people that had come to church that day. 
And so there was one in particular called the chair of Moses, the seat of Moses. It was the seat, the first chair. You got to sit in that. You were a person of distinction. They sought that chair. They sought that recognition. They loved the greetings in the marketplace. These aren't, this isn't just, hey, Pharisee so-and-so, how you doing? This is a long, drawn-out, elaborate greeting, salutation. Oh, most holy Pharisee, known for your love for God and devotion, how great you are and great... I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. You can imagine a Pharisee just kind of like, come on, keep going. Bring it. Right? They love that kind of stuff. They love the adulation. They love the greetings in the marketplace. All of it was rooted in their pride, their arrogance, and it's an affront to God. It is self-glorifying, and it is idolatrous. And so Jesus warns them, Whoa! God's judgment is coming to you. God resists the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. He's calling them at the same time to repent and to show that repentance and humility. In the third woe, Jesus calls out the deception of the Pharisees. A deception that endangers not just them, but endangers the very people that they lead. Verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. So imagine yourself in a cemetery where there are graves all around, but there's no marker to let you know where the grave is. In a Jewish culture, this is a very, very bad thing, because to come in contact with the dead would render you uh, ritually unclean make you unacceptable to God for a period of time. So walking over a graveyard with unmarked graves, if a person was walking through that and didn't have the graves to kind of let them know where they were, they would unknowingly risk making contact with the dead and thus render themselves unclean. And so Jesus applies this metaphor to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, by their teaching and by their example, claim to lead the people of God in faithfulness and truth, but in actuality they are deceiving people by leading them in the wrong direction. Those who follow after the Pharisees, thinking that they are being led into greater truth and greater faithfulness, are actually being deceived and walking even further into spiritual darkness, thus endangering themselves before God. So Jesus says, woe, he warns the Pharisees that God will judge you for your deception. And he calls them to repent. So the Pharisees both internally and externally give evidence of rejecting God. Their hearts are far from God. They corrupt His Word with their man-made traditions. They neglect His clear commands. They lead people who follow them further and further away from God without their knowledge. They are deceiving them. So to reject God brings terrible danger. Those woes foreshadow the coming judgment of God, but at the same time, since judgment has not yet come, they're called to repentance. They're called to change, to turn, so that they might avoid judgment, that they might become true followers of God. And Jesus then goes against the lawyers in verses 45 to verse 52. Just kind of keep this brief. We don't have time to go into all of these. The lawyers were also scribes. I probably should explain that. The lawyers were scribes. They were people that were literate. They transcribed. They copied the Word of God. So they were very learned. They knew very intimately the Word of God. They were teachers and they were consulted for their opinions, their interpretations of the law. They were very helpful, at least according to the minds of the time, uh, in applying the law to daily life. So the lawyers are also scribes here. And Jesus, well, verse 45, one of the lawyers is insulted. Lord, these things you say to us, they insult us also. He's offended because Jesus has gone after the Pharisees. So Jesus goes after them. 
Jesus doesn't change his tune. He doesn't apologize. He goes after them for their own issues, for their own hypocrisy. Verse 46, they weigh the people down with their burdens, heavy loads. And yet they don't do anything to lift those burdens up. So as the people are crushed under the weight of these burdens, they feel the defeat, the devastation, the condemnation that comes with not being able to obey the law. And Jesus says to them, whoa, God's going to judge you, not just for the burden, but also for not giving them any relief from the burden. He says in verses 47 to 45 that, that they are, he rebukes them for rejecting God's messengers. They build these monuments, these tombs to the prophets whom their fathers killed generations before. And Jesus says in a very interesting way, it's not just to mark their memory, but they're really joining their ancestors by saying, look how we got here. They're not just saying these were great prophets, but they're calling attention to how they even died in the first place. That their ancestors rejected the messages that they brought. And now Jesus warns them that they're doing the very same thing by rejecting his message. Jesus is a prophet in their train. He is in their lineage. And he is the fulfillment of all they prophesied. And yet, because they've rejected Jesus, now they are joining in their ancestors, their murderous ancestors, by rejecting God's messenger. They're rejecting God himself. In the third and final woe, Jesus condemns them for taking away the key of knowledge. A key is used to open a door. It gives access. The, the lawyers here had removed access to God by not teaching the truth. And they were hindering people from coming to God. And so Jesus calls them, warns them of judgment and calls them to repentance, to come to a true knowledge of God through his true and faithful interpreter, Jesus Christ. So the lawyers are in danger as well of rejecting God by rejecting his word, by rejecting his messenger, by failing to understand and teach the truth that he had given in his word. They are in even greater danger because they are leading people in this darkness, that they are leading people headlong into judgment. We would wonder then, how would they respond? Would they respond in repentance? Would they respond in faith? No. They actually double down. They don't feel conviction, the weight of their sin. Jesus' warnings go unheeded. And instead of repenting and coming to him and entering into the kingdom, they begin to work actively to catch him in his words. They want to, they go on the offensive, so to speak. They're trying to get into Satan that they can use against him and thus lead to his destruction. This is where the opposition, which has been brewing now for quite some time, is really solidifying. And they will oppose him all the way to the cross. They plotted to destroy Jesus. And rather than turning to him, rather than repenting, they entrenched themselves in this opposition, not realizing that they were opposing God himself. So the Pharisees, the lawyers, the skeptics in the crowd, they rejected the gospel. They rejected Jesus. And they rejected God who had sent Jesus to bring them the knowledge of the truth. And ultimately, that rejection led them to crucify Christ. They meant that for his destruction. But in the end, even though they were guilty, they were serving God's purpose. I think it's important for us to see that in the light of the historical circumstance. That even though they opposed God, even though they rejected God and rejected Christ, they were, God was still fulfilling his purpose to bring us our redemption. 
But their rejection of the gospel, their rejection of Jesus, and their rejection of God is a warning to us too. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, understand that this word is a warning that you might not make the same mistake, that you might not make the same misstep. You have a decision to make about Jesus. And this is an interesting thing. Jesus is on the ballot, but there's only one name. And it's not whether or not you get to choose whether he gets to be king or not. He is king. The referendum really isn't about Jesus. It's about you. Are you on his side or are you against him? You've got to make a decision about Jesus. And my challenge to you is let this truth of the scripture illuminate your heart and your mind. Seriously consider your standing before God. Consider the judgment that's coming. If you continue on in this way, consider the judgment that will be yours if you remain in your sinful ways. Repent. Turn to Christ. Enter into his kingdom. Receive his salvation. Experience the goodness that is found in him alone. And brothers and sisters, this passage also warns us. It warns us to keep running the race set before us. It warns us to keep trusting in Christ. It warns us to keep walking in the light of his truth so that we might endure all the way to the very end. And at the same time, it encourages us to be mindful of others who are currently rejecting Christ, to pray for them, to plead with them, to bear with them, to hang with them, to stay with them, so that they too might come to a knowledge of the truth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage this morning, a difficult one as we consider rejection, consider warnings, and yet, Lord, it's part of the gospel message. You warn us, Lord, of what is to come. At the same time, in that warning, Lord, you call us to repent and to enter into the life and salvation and the goodness that you give to us in Christ. God, I pray this morning for anyone who's here that's not a Christian, that they would truly consider these things, that they would not take them lightly, that these words would not fall on deaf ears, Lord, that you would bring the conviction of your Holy Spirit to bear in their life, that they would heed these words, they would turn to you, that they would be saved, and they would have life. And Father, for us, whom you've been so gracious to, I pray these words would be a reminder for us to keep walking, to keep walking in the light, to keep slogging forward, to keep being faithful all the way to the very end. Your word is good. The hope of salvation is wonderful. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us to keep walking in the light. And so bring glory and honor to your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.